0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Live Longer World podcast. I am your host, Asta Jain. On this podcast, I have conversations with scientists and entrepreneurs that are transforming the field of longevity science. If you wish to stay notified of upcoming podcast releases and sign up for my newsletter, head over to livelongerworld.com. And if you want to receive extensive show notes and transcripts from each episode, you can sign up to be a premium member at LiveLongerWorld.com forward slash premium. My guest today is Dr. Bjorn Schumacher, whose work focuses on the central role of DNA damage in the aging process. We discuss DNA damage accumulation with age, how DNA repair mechanisms play a role, how DNA damage in the reproductive cells can tell us a lot about aging, human fertility and reproductive capacity. We also discussed the role of P53 in cancer suppression, a new biological clock being developed in his lab, and how we should protect our skin and intestines from aging and thereby control DNA damage. A lot of us have heard the link between DNA damage and aging, and this conversation really dives into it. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Brian Schumacher. Hi. Dr. Bjorn, and welcome to the Live Longer World podcast. So great to have you here today. Thanks for having me. So I'm very excited to talk to you about your research, which uh, focuses a lot on DNA damage and aging. And you know the word DNA damage and its link to aging gets thrown around a lot, but you really dive into this. And you show that, in fact, DNA damage might be playing a unifying role in all aspects of aging. Um, and you also say that the genome is inherently unstable and constantly subject to damage. So maybe if you can talk a bit about what is the central role of damage in aging?
1: So DNA is the blueprint of life. So every, every information about building and maintaining a, a cell running an organism is encoded in the DNA. And it's really surprising how inherently unstable DNA is. It inflicts tens of thousands of lesions every single day. Every single um, cell in our body experiences about a hundred thousand DNA lesions every day. So it's constantly occurring. It's a, it's a fact of life that DNA is damaged and requires constant repair, and uh, there are distinct repair mechanisms. And when they fail, pay, people can. Age in, in an extremely accelerated fashion. So, there are patients that carry mutations in single DNA repair genes and they show the same aging associated diseases when they are only 10 years old. Hmm. And uh, that we have when we are 80, 90 years old, neurodegeneration, arteriosclerosis, and so on kill these patients before they reach teenage. So DNA damage is a really fundamental cause that drives the aging process. And what we increasingly um, learn nowadays is um, how many physiological processes are linked, are affected by DNA damage, by the response to DNA damage. And uh, that's really how we learn to appreciate uh, how complex the consequences of DNA damage are.
0: Fantastic. So you said... Thing about response to DNA damage, and you also mentioned um, premature aging diseases, which I'll get to later. But in terms of the response to DNA damage, we do have DNA repair mechanisms. So what is happening with age? Is it that the DNA repair mechanisms are failing us, or is it that DNA damage overload is becoming too much to bear?
1: So that's a very interesting question. So if you imagine that there's now all the time DNA damage occurring and repair is not perfect it's very very good but it's not nothing is perfect so um, it is indeed possible that there's a gradual accumulation and now why is DNA repair not perfected and that is because our somatic tissues only have to last for an individual's lifespan. And uh, we hate to hear that, but um, traditionally, humans are not made to live as long as, um, you know, we want to live nowadays um, because it only mattered that we could pass on our genes to the next generation. And for humans that, you know, until the next generation can run the business and be uh, up and running and reproducing themselves, it takes about a human generation of like 30 years, maybe 40 years. And until then, our repair mechanisms are really good enough. Uh, In germ cells, they're of course functioning much better. So germline mutations are about two orders of magnitude lower than the somatic mutations in somatic cells. So um, yes, there are better repair mechanisms than our somatic cells have. We have them in our germ cells, but of course the proficiency of we also investing into DNA repair is limited to what has been required in our evolutionary history to, f- to maintain our, our bodies. Um, and other species have different... Um, uh, DNA repair and DNA damage response mechanisms that are always adapted to what what is necessary, really. And uh, so, of course, a vision of our work is really to, in the future, being able to enhance DNA repair, augment DNA repair. But it's a very, very complex process. But we are learning how we could figure that out.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's complex. Um, I'm curious then... Um, is it? Are you able to study if there is a point after reproductive age when DNA repair mechanisms just don't work as they used to? Is there an acceleration in, uh, call it defects in DNA repair me- mechanism after reproductive age?
1: So it's it's probably a relatively slow moving uh, process that um, that with time repair is not good enough to further maintain it. Uh, what we know currently is that when we look at mutation rates in humans in human aging, mutations increase with age. They increase linearly, so that would suggest that indeed it's a it's a gradual process that goes on through our entire lifespan. Um, And uh, so it it could be this gradual process. Um, It's probably um, affected by, for example, individual aging trajectories that could play a major role there. um, How proficient are our repair mechanisms? Um, But by and large, they are are just sufficient for three, four decades. They are not sufficient for uh, lifespans. Now we have a life expectancy of around 80 years. It looks like it's going to approach 100 years. Um, and for that period of time, we do not have the sufficiency in our repair capacities in our human genome. Um, and I think this is really the, the, the fundamental question, how we can augment it sufficiently to really maintain. You have to imagine that we have different requirements depending on whether we're talking about the stem cell compartment that is constantly renewing, think of our uh, bone marrow of our blood regeneration, or think on the other side of the spectrum of neurons that we are born with that have to last for an entire lifespan, 100 years old with the same cell that you were born with, how can it fix all this damage? Um, And I think uh, this this remains because such a fundamental cause of aging, it really remains um, the the in very important target um, to be con- to to really have therapies developed on, and there's currently really nothing that um, uh, that approaches aging at this very fundamental level, um, but this is something we are venturing into currently
0: for pointing out the nuance that, you know, different cells might require different strategies to work on DNA repair mechanisms. Um, And I'm curious when you've studied diseases like premature aging, uh, one, is it that they have mutations in their DNA uh, that's causing this damage or is it defective DNA repair mechanisms? And also on that point that you mentioned that different cells might require different types of mechanisms, do you notice maybe uh, defects in DNA repair in certain types of cells for some of these diseases?
1: Yeah, so these are very interesting questions. So um, there are two really distinct outcomes of DNA damage. One is mutations. Mutations are known to cause cancer because mutations, they change the gene sequence, gene function. So if you think about tumor suppressor genes or oncogenes, mutations will alter their function and cause cancer. That's why we know for many, many decades now that DNA damage is really the cause of cancer development. Uh, That's why carcinogens are invariably factors that inflict DNA damage that lead to mutations. But then there's a really distinct consequence of DNA damage, and that is blockage of DNA metabolism. So, for example, transcription replication can be blocked by DNA damage, and this has consequences that range from a cell being unable to generate new transcripts of a gene, so compromising its function, all the way to responses to, for example, replication forks stalling that induces cellular senescence. So then the, the occurrence of, of senescent cells in the aging body is mainly driven by this DNA damage response. Other cell types undergo apoptosis, you can have degeneration of tissues, stem cell loss. Um, and so there are really this distinct type of outcomes, and we know that there are also um, uh, inborn mutations, congenital de- defects in DNA repair, that lead to either cancer susceptibility. So where mutation load is now greatly increased, and some patients uh, have then several thousand-fold induced susceptibility to develop cancer already when they are children. Um, and on the other side, you have repair defects where you have degenerative features. Neurodegeneration is really rampant in some of these children suffering from DNA repair defects. So there are these distinct outcomes, and uh, it distinctively affects which precise mechanism is disturbed. Um, and here, the the uh, important things is the thing is that um, we need to start interfering very upstream with the problem. There's some aspect to that is avoidance of genotoxins. uh, And another aspect is more really going into the molecular details to being able to target DNA repair processes.
0: Very, very interesting. Uh, You actually mentioned briefly that you're working towards something like this to be able to target different DNA repair mechanisms. I'm not sure if the work is too early or if you can speak to it.
1: Yeah, so we are in a very early phase at uh, discovering um, mechanisms that uh, what we have already discovered are mechanisms uh, that enhance tolerance to DNA damage, that augment the maintenance of tissues, tolerating this onslaught of um, of DNA damage uh, accumulation. And these are signaling mechanisms that are associated with longevity. For example, insulin-like signaling, um, uh, TOR signaling plays a role there. Processes like autophagy, protein homeostasis, play a major role in these responses. And here, this is the first line of of, uh, interference, of interventions, where actually the, um, we can we can target longevity mechanisms that can really help to preserve the functionality of tissues um, the first such demonstration is for example with calorie restriction which also actually has a major effect on ameliorating the um uh, the the accelerated aging process of dna repair defects that is the first step this is the uh, really um, the f- the first generation of uh, of interventions that we are, we are aiming at. Now the second the, the, the future will of course be, and we are uh, we are approaching that, um, the future will be really to mechanistically directly target um, the functionality of DNA repair mechanisms. That's kind of the 2.0 version of that, but we have already laid the groundwork now for the very uh, very first, Um, step of targeting longevity assurance mechanisms, DNA damage tolerance, uh, and that is the stepping stone then to a future where we can really um, uh, greatly expand the genome stability.
0: Very exciting, looking forward to that. But uh, on the point of um, longevity assurance mechanisms, you actually have a paper that says that delayed and accelerated aging, in fact, share longevity assurance pathways, which sounds quite confounding to people, um, so what are these shared pathways and I guess what we learned from this paper?
1: So we coined the the, the, the term of a survival response and um, and termed this also um, age to survive because what it actually does is that now you have accumulating accumulating DNA damage with aging and the organism responds to that it doesn't respond by killing itself, some individual cells do that by undergoing apoptosis, but the organism is trying to stay alive. And how do you stay alive when you have accumulation of DNA damage? What the organism does in aging is it reduces growth. It reduces endocrine signaling pathways. This is exactly this shift that you experience with age. Downregulation of a growth permissive a tissue environment, and this is what these longevity assurance mechanisms do. They downregulate everything that that has to do with with growth. This is actually how an aging organism tries to limit the growth of tumor cells. Uh, you have the because the the risk of cancer directly correlates with age because you have all these mutations accumulated. So you so if you had the growth permissive environment of a young. Uh, organism of a young human in an aged uh, person who has all these mutations accumulated, you'd have rampant cancer growth all over the place. You want to avoid that. You want to avoid that by changing the endocrine environment. And there are, of course, conflicts of that. You can extend lifespan if you reduce growth. We've learned that, um, for example, with, uh, with dwarf mice small mice that have a pituitary defect or that have reduced growth hormones they actually live longer they remain small and live longer because they do this already very early in their lives Uh, and with age we do the same thing we're trying to limit uh, tissue growth which comes at the expense of regeneration because there's less um, capacity of stem cell compartments to Regenerate. Uh, we see that in the bone marrow, for example, that increasingly become incapable of, you know, building all the uh, blood cells that we we need, all the lineages that we need. We know that in muscle, for example, um, the stem cells of the muscle they actually could still function quite well, but they don't have the endocrine environment that stimulates them, um, and so this is a very fine balance also when you think now about um, uh, therapies that would try to give you back some growth factors because this you know would help maybe some stem cell compartments but you have inherently the risk that these mutated cells that are just waiting to receive some growth signals to become cancer cells so it's a very very fine balance that needs to be uh, struck because aging it operates on so many different levels.
0: Right, I, right. I was talking to Dr. David Gems, um, who spoke about the hyperfunction theory of aging, which was coined by uh, Mikhail Blagasconi, which is basically talking about continuation of growth and the wild-type gene that results in accelerated aging and the mTOR-driven growth. So, the the point you're talking about, growth and DNA damage, also just fits in perfectly there.
1: Right,
0: absolutely. So on the on the point of DNA damage and uh, germline, germ cells, which are the reproductive cells, um, you talk about how DNA damage checkpoints functionally reside in the germline. Um, so, and in fact, that every time there's a DNA damage to the germline, it triggers an innate immune response system, which triggers stress resistance, which again is a little more pu- puzzling. Um, So I guess I have two questions there. What then is the connection between the soma and the germline? Uh, You've touched briefly on this. And then part two, what is this innate immune system that that gets triggered and um, perhaps how does that affect aging in terms of maybe dealing it?
1: So the, the germline and the soma interact very, very closely. Uh, that is true for humans, as well as for very simple animals. Like we, for example, like to study the nematode C. elegans because it's very simple, but still it has the same genes, the same mechanisms, the same aging process that we have as humans. The We know that um, the germline in humans has a major impact on the aging process. So it's known that uh, there are co- there is communication. It is unlikely that it has to do directly with fertility. It's more sophisticated than that. It's probably um, uh, probably um, uh, hormonal signals, growth factor signals and uh, cytokine signals that play a role there. Now we know, however, very little how this works in humans. Even in mammals, even in mice, we don't know very much because it's very, very complex. In worms, in C. elegans, this is much simpler. So we can learn principles from that. And indeed, when um, C. elegans, for example, um, carries DNA damage in the germline, then it cannot produce any offspring because germ cells very, very strictly control the integrity of the genomes that they are supposed to inherit. So they, they, they stop reproducing, and now they signal to the, to the soma via an innate in, in, in immune response that, tri- that, that induces um, stress resistance in the soma. Stress resistance is always associated with longevity, because a primary mechanism of how longevity assurance pathways operate is that they enhance resilience of the organism towards multiple types of stresses, and this is exactly what happens. Um, and so now the the soma can endure for longer and can extend expand the reproductive lifespan. So it's reproductive lifespan extension in response to impediments in the the germ cells. And once the germ cells have repaired, then they can resume offspring generation during a a period of their adult lives that normally reproduction has already ceased. Um, And also vice versa. The SOMAR surveys actually, we found that very, very recently, that the, the, the SOMAR can survey the environment for stress factors. And these stress factors can impact the quality control of the genomes in the germ cells, um, and it is required to, for example, suppress as we just showed, uh, very um, uh, in in a current article, um, it suppresses the occurrence of aneuploidy. Now, in humans, we know that aneuploidy risk increases with particular with maternal age, because the control of the of the uh, chromosome integrity decreases with age, even in in human oocytes. Right, that are formed also very early, they are already very old, um, uh, sometimes, um, and uh, they they carry an increasing risk of aneuploidy in humans, this leads to trisomy 21, for example. Um, and the very similar processes happen in C. elegans. And we uh, realize that this actually is controlled by somatic stress responses. And in humans, again, we know very little about. We know that there are environmental factors that impact uh, the occurrence of aneuploidy, um, But we don't know how that works. And now we can learn from C. elegans how these somatic stress responses actually in uh, Uh, survey the environment, and then control the integrity of the germ cells.
0: Wow. So what you're saying, basically, from what I understand, is that um, DNA damage in the germline can uh, promote stress resistance in the soma. And even though when there is damage in the germline, there's no reproduction at that point, but when the repair mechanism kicks in, uh, the organism can start reproducing again at the same time it's in fact um, promoted its longevity in some ways by becoming more stress resistant.
1: Absolutely. This is absolutely what happens. So the SOMA reacts to that and and there's evidence that uh, in humans this is rather similar. So, for example, what we know from historic records, um, the clearest coming from uh, the Korean court where um, it was for for over many centuries. There were uh, lifespan data recorded of the eunuchs that lived in aristocratic lifestyle, and they uh, showed an in, in extended lifespan by almost twenty. 20- 20 years compared to male members of aristocratic families at the same time. Uh, And so suggesting that the very same mechanisms happen in humans. And again, the important thing, it's not about fertility. It's actually about signals. And we really should figure out what these signals are.
0: I see. So when you say it's not about fertility, because I remember if you think about humans, and this could be totally uh, not related, but I guess with women and the menstrual cycle, I think sometimes when women are under stress and the, the menstrual, menstrual cycle stops, so it sort of pushes the timeline uh, back, I, th- I believe sometimes and in fact uh, promotes boost longevity. So I'm, I'm not sure if it's the same mechanism that's going on with making the body more stress resistant.
1: So this is this is very interesting because in in female reproduction, the age of menopause is correlated with lifespan, mm-hmm. uh, and um, uh, GWAS analysis, so genome wide uh, association studies of very very large numbers of um, of, of women, um, uh, have shown that menopause, age of menopause, is very much related to DNA repair genes, gene variants. So it, it looks like that this is really a unifying mechanism that DNA repair has a role in determining menopausal age. And that, uh, again, has then a consequence of overall, uh, lifespan. Um, and, uh, so it is, it is, I think, very possible that the same, um, germline soma interactions that we see in C. elegans are very much conserved during evolution because they are very important for reproduction. Um, and this uh, probably plays a major role in human aging as well. And the unifying mechanism again appears to be uh, DNA repair because human oocytes are extremely sensitive to DNA damage, uh, which is a major issue, for example, when you think about uh, cancer therapy. Um, Cancer therapy mostly relies on genotoxins, on chemotherapy, radiation therapy, which inflict DNA damage. And oocytes are exquisitely sensitive to that. They undergo apoptosis as programmed cell death. And this is obviously uh, a major problem then um, uh, for these women, particularly when they are young. Uh, And I think here we really need to dig in much, much deeper in understanding um, the repair mechanisms, the responses in the germ cells, in the oocytes, how that interacts with the soma. how can we preserve better oocytes, how can we uh, interfere with the signaling mechanisms between the soma and the germ cells. Also that vice versa, it's very important that uh, somatic um, inputs have a profound effect on oocytes. Um, that we just learned in C. elegans now, and I think we really uh, have to make much more efforts to understand this better, and that will directly impact our understanding of human aging.
0: Fascinating. I I can't wait to learn more as well. Very interesting. So on the point of DNA repair, um, you also study p53, which is uh, a protein that plays a very crucial role in DNA repair and also tumor suppression, uh, stopping cancer uh, and aging in the process. So maybe if you can talk a bit about what is p53 and what is the role it's playing in DNA repair?
1: So p53 is probably the gene that is researched more than any other gene in the human genome. Why is that? Because p53 is the number one tumor suppressor that we have. Um, about half of the human cancers overall have mutations in p53, more than in any other gene. So p53 really is the true guardian of the genome. What does p53 do? It responds to DNA damage and it responds in a very complex way. It can induce cell cycle arrest, which is important to allow um, the repair mechanisms to repair before a cell starts proliferating again. It checks the quality of the cell, of the integrity. It can also induce apoptosis, programmed cell death, that is. Uh, We just talked about um, oocytes in humans. They are eliminated by a very closely related cousin of P53, P63, that induced apoptosis there. But in our somatic cells, it's mostly P53. Um, It also induces cellular senescence. So the major driver of this uh, of the increase in cellular senescence in the aging organism. Um, We know that um, heritable mutations in p53 lead to a rare disease that is characterized by an enormous susceptibility to cancer, and so p53 is really absolutely required to prevent cancer development. Now, how how does that affect aging? There has been very, very interesting work that um, where additional copies of P53 offer additional protection from uh, from cancer. And in combinations with additional suppressor, tumor suppressor genes, this can also extend lifespan. Now, this becomes important, for example, also in species that are very long-lived and very large. So think about an elephant. It's much larger than a human, many more cell divisions, and it lives really, really long. Um, what does it do? It has many, ma- many copies of P53. So it's super protected from, from cancer. We wish we had this type of, of cancer protection by just having a few more copies of P53. That would be truly amazing. Um, we found actually that P53 is very conserved again. Uh, also C. elegans has it already, and it teaches us what originally these mechanisms are good for. Because what P53 does in C. elegans it controls the integrity of the germ cells it controls whether um, a, a germ cell on the way of becoming an oocyte for example has properly done all the meiotic recombination that germ cells do you know to bring new combinations of chromosome in the next generation, and b 53 checks that. That's the most ancestral function. So it comes from the most important genome quality control that there is, which is in germ cells, during oogenesis, for example. Uh, and in humans, this evolved then to really being the major primary and most important um, suppressor of cancer development.
0: You mentioned that p53 plays a major role in uh, germ cells and quality control. There, um, I guess after reproductive age, then um, is p53 still playing a role, or is, is it could that also be the case where uh, linked to I guess aging and and just p53 not playing a role with the germ cells?
1: There is some evidence to that that um, in in humans variants in p53 and p63 might actually. Um, have an impact on reproductive aging, um, so there's there's there are some hints that this is in in fact true. Um, it's of such fundamental um, importance to suppress tumorigenesis that variants are generally would have very adverse effects. Um, but it's really a, a a baseline requirement that we have functional p53, um, and they are now actually. There's been a long quest of trying to uh, therapeutically reinstate P53 function. Um, There are very interesting developments in that um, because as you can easily imagine, if there's a gene that is defective in half of all cancers, that this would uh, be a really game changer in cancer therapy if we manage to reinstate this this very fundamental suppressor of, of carcinogenesis cancer development, um, we use, again, C. elegans because it's very conserved, all these hotspots, all these mutations you find in cancers, they, the same, uh, uh, these residues, these uh, are, uh, these hotspot um, uh, residues are very conserved in C. elegans. And we're using that system to now devise strategies to actually um, uh, reinstate function there, reinstate a tumor suppressor Response when p53 is mutated, as it is in cancer cells.
0: I see. So, what is there something that goes wrong with p53? p53 with age, like for people who don't have, um, like a defect in p53. Just if, if it's a healthy p53, is there something that's going awry with age that's uh, maybe making the DNA repair process less effective?
1: So, what what happens in in aging is that P53 might become chronically activated by a chronic DNA damage response, and chronic responses are really not particularly healthy. You see that, for example, when now you do the reverse. What happens if you hyperactivate P53? Now, you would think this is great because it suppresses tumors, and it, in fact, does that but it comes at a cost, and the cost is premature aging. So, a constitutive activation of P53, that really, really drives aging because it induces apoptosis, it induces uh, cellular senescence. Uh, So, hyperactivation can really be quite detrimental, in fact. Um, So, it really is about finding the right balance And what I told you about having additional copies, now that's great because they're not really hyperactive. They're just very much more, much less likely to get lost and get mutated because you always have still some wild type P53 around. That's why this, you know, this elephant strategy of having multiple copies works so well. It allows long lifespan and it allows um, uh, a tumor free uh, survival. Uh, While hyperactivation, that really puts down the throttle to accelerate the aging process.
0: I see. That's exactly what I was going to ask you. Um, All right. Moving maybe a little bit from DNA damage and uh, repair, you also have a new uh, transcriptomic clock, the BIT clock. um, And you say that, you know, it's close to theoretical accuracy. So congrats on that. Maybe if you can tell us a bit about the clock.
1: Yeah. So uh, biological clocks to assess aging are very important. Why are they important? Because biological age is very distinct from chronological age. We know that, um, that with increasing time, aging trajectory has become very different. And having an, a biological aging clock is very, is a prerequisite to really develop therapies that target the aging process because the future vision is really to, to uh, slow down aging, to reduce the risk for age-related diseases and extend health span. But if we want to test for that, we clearly need biomarkers of aging. And it turns out that this, that because aging trajectories are so individualized, we cannot just have some physiological parameters because they are only a handful and it's just not enough to really um, uh, accurately, quantitatively measure the aging process. So that's why um, with really pioneering work from Steve Horvath, um, epigenetic clocks were established. So here, um, the epigenetic modifications on DNA, they're very manifold, there are many, many different types of uh, different locations, different um, extent of epigenetic modifications. Because there are so many, you can find some that actually change consistently over the aging process. So this is the first generation now that is currently um, has been introduced also into the market of epigenetic clocks um, that can assess biological age. And that's a very important step. Now, the, the limitation there is that um, they do not allow us to understand which genes are affected by that. And that's why we, that was a major motivation to uh, um, develop a transcriptome clock. Because here now we can really look at gene activity and which genes are contributing to the aging trajectory. Um, And so uh, we again use C. elegans for devising this clock because in C. elegans we know exactly the lifespan effect on hundreds of different types of interventions, nutritional intervention, genetic intervention, environmental interventions, pharmacological interventions, all these types of interventions, we know exactly how it affects the lifespan of the work. Now, there we used for exactly those treatments all these different transcriptome, gene activity measurements, uh, to at the same time look at 20,000 genes, how they change, and based on that, um, we defined a clock. The challenge thus far with transcriptome clocks has always been that there's a lot of variation in terms of how much transcript um, a, different, um, a different animals generate or different cells generate even. And we eliminated that by binarizing um, the expression changes. That's why uh, it's a binarized uh, transcriptome clock. Um, and then we can eliminate the, the, the inherent variance Um, and drive down the major limitations thus far of transcriptome clocks and define a very, very accurate clock. And at the same time, we can validate that all these different interventions can be measured by this transcriptome clock. So they, in fact, can be seen in very young adulthood. Um, We can predict how much lifespan will be affected by an intervention, for example. We then validated this, that this also works uh, for human cells um, and um, we are very eager to now actually implement that into um, as, as a dia- human diagnostics to really see how we can uh, uh, measure not only biological age but also based on all this wealth of information that we are gather that we're gathering there um, to actually also really, um, uh, address individualized agent trajectories that in humans play a major role in, for example, uh, being, being at risk at, for very specific age related diseases.
0: Fantastic. So, um, is there, w- when you've tested these interventions in um, C. elegans or even humans uh, and tested the clocks there, have you noticed certain genes that? come up that uh, can promote, that that commonly promote longevity.
1: Yeah, so that's very interesting because with the transcriptome clock, we can actually look at the genes. And so we did exactly that. And we found that the major driver of the biological age in, in uh, C. elegans, where we knew all these interventions, is the innate immune response. And that is, of course, very, very conserved in humans because um, in chronic inflammation is a major driver um, of the dysfunctionality of the degeneration of the damage of tissues uh, that we see in aging. Uh, And this seems to be really a conserved, um, it it seems to be so accurately increasing with age that this is really a conserved driver. We know that that inflammatory responses are in, uh, can be induced by DNA damage. So the, the chronic the accumulation of DNA damage that persists then can really be a driver for these chronic inflammatory responses that then really uh, cause the damage to the tissues. Um, and so this is the major uh, part of the um, of these of this clock. The major driver genes of the biological clock are really innate immune uh, response factors.
0: I see. So when you said that you know the clock would be hopefully able to point out individual aging trajectories, um, is it pointing out, I guess, aging in different systems or um, how your own genes are interacting? How do you envision it being? Because I, I was talking to Dr. Margaret Levine, and she's working on the system's age clock, which can essentially tell you the biological age of different organs and tissues in your body. So not just the composite, but also, the specific parts so you can tell, hopefully, that, you know, this system is aging faster than another one, and that's also going to be individual. So how do you envision uh, the, the BIT clock being?
1: Yeah, I think this will be very similar in terms of different tissues. They do have uh, um, uh, different uh, aging clocks then, indeed. So um, uh, that will be certainly one part of it um and uh, what we really hope that that we will um be able to develop based on this is now also to see whether we find additional markers not only of the of the age biomarker but actually also associations to certain early stage disease uh development so for example a major um uh, issue currently is that um the the chronic diseases of aging are diagnosed too late so that is actually something that really um, prevents um, very early interventions that could probably be more beneficial than very late interventions. Uh, and here we would hope that because we have information on twenty thousand genes at the same time, only a minor fraction of that may actually the, the aging clock, but we could. Um, at the same time develop then additional um, biomarker assays that are more reflective then of of specific inflammatory responses, for example, of of, um, uh, associations with certain disease trajectories. Um, And that would then also allow us in intervention studies, and this I'm talking now really the future, um, to really know from intervention studies how they work, what are they affecting, and how much do they antagonize all aging or specific disease risks. Um, and so I think it's it's extremely powerful to develop further these uh, transcriptome clocks.
0: I can agree with you, mother. I think the more information we have on being able to not just detect diseases early but also be able to really test what interventions are working, just the more powerful the, the research can be. Um, one other paper I want to talk about was um, aging and skin. And I think that stood out to me because when I was talking to Dr. Colin Ewald, he mentioned, um, you know, damage to the extracellular matrix. And you point that out when in this paper, when it comes to skin aging, there's all this damage that's going on to the extracellular matrix. And in fact, you know, we all know that skin is the first point of contact for DNA damage and DNA lesions to occur. Um, So I guess maybe the question is that, have you noticed something with the, if you can detect skin aging that uh, allows you to detect DNA damage in a person or what, what is the connection there between skin aging and DNA damage?
1: So in the human skin, um, there is an inherent and intrinsic aging process and there are extrinsic Uh, factors. And uh, sunlight is the major extrinsic factor um, that damages our skin. Uh, Our skin is just not made really for this sunlight exposure that we're experiencing. When we look at our very close cousins in the the animal uh, kingdom, we see they have a lot more fur than we have. So they are much better protected. Uh, and we lack this protection. Um, and so um sunlight, because of this UV part of the sunlight, is really driving aging and driving mutagenesis. We have a huge problem still nowadays, although we all know how uh, harmful UV light is, we still have UV-induced uh, carcinogenesis um, in humans that to a large extent is, uh, c- could be preventable. Um, so there is a major impact of uh, UV light um, and it impacts both. It impacts, um, again, cancer development because of mutations and it really promotes the aging process uh, in the skin. So you see photo um, aging uh, very clearly um, you can even compare sun-exposed skin from protected skin. It will age very differently. Um, and here, but the good side is really, there are a lot of good news from the dermatology field. One is we know about prevention, uh, and we should really have vigorous protection from, from UV exposure. Um, then it's a very accessible organ. There are many new therapies that are coming out now. Um there they are very encouraging results from melanoma, for example, that used to be death sentence, now it's largely treatable. Um there's also the very possibility of very early detection. Um so it's really everybody should take care of their skin also by having screenings, they're they're completely non-invasive screenings, uh, so it's very easy to do. Um and the early removal of a mold, for example, can really, really uh, make a huge difference. Um, and uh, there are also many therapies for inflammatory skin diseases that um, you know, of, of compounds that are very complex to use for any internal organs, but they can be applied to the skin. So we have now very specific, much more improved therapies for many disease, skin diseases. Um, and so dermatology is a field that has really exploded with new, uh, treatments, new insights. It's a very exciting field. Um, and so we can learn really a lot because it's so, it's such an accessible organ. It's a complex organ. It's uh, under the influence of many environmental factors. Um, not only not only sunlight. I mean, also smoking affects the skin very, very gravely. Um, and there's really a lot of new therapies that came out. Um, so I think it's it's really a field to turn to.
0: I'll be sure to look into that and also be more vigilant about wearing my sunscreen. Um, last question: You have a recent paper that talks about. Um, how stress in the intestine or the gut can also change uh, change the chromosome. Uh, what is happening in the gut there? What, what's the paper talking about?
1: So that was a very exciting finding we made that um, the intestine, in worms, the intestine, actually also in humans, the intestine can really sense a lot of stress and a lot of environmental factors. Um, and so, so it does in, in worms. It's a major organ for... Um, immune responses and stress responses. And what we found is that there is a major uh, stress response mechanism. It's a very conserved um, uh, stress response that also, resp- uh, also regulates immunity in the worm. And that is a profound impact of the quality control in germ cells. So germ cells um, uh, regulate very, very precisely which germ cells should become oocytes to have, to have them fertilized and which ones should be eliminated. Very similar as in humans, um, oocytes are eliminated if they have the slightest uh, a sign of damaged chromosomes. And uh, we realize now that um, these intestinal stress responses, they respond to DNA damage in the germ cells and they respond to environmental stress so for example elevated temperature is a major stress factor for worms um, and so these intestinal stress responses they then um, m- uh, are mediating uh, the quality control of the germ cells if you lack if you have a failed uh, stress response in the intestine the um, the germ cells give rise to unuploid progeny now, this in humans is, an, is equivalent to the age-dependent occurrence of trisomy 21, uh, that is majorly um, influenced by maternal age, because there's an increasing risk of losing uh, or um, of, of losing the, the the accurate number of chromosomes, and the same happens under stress in worms. And uh, so, for the first time, we could show that it's really the intestinal stress responses that determine this. Now, in humans, there's a lot of circumventral evidence about environmental factors uh, uh, that can impact the risk of aneuploidy, this age-dependent risk of aneuploidy. Um, and uh, so, I think that we can uh, we have now the the opportunity to really understand how. Somatic responses, stress responses in the body, um, control the um, the uh, inheritance of the accurate uh, chromosome numbers to the next generation, and I think this will um, be a guideline, a guide now to better understand how also in humans the age-dependent aneuploidy, uh, for example, the occurrence of trisomy twenty-one can actually be um, uh, be controlled and how the quality control can be improved in the aging organism.
0: So could it be that if you make the intestine more robust, you can uh, increase the robustness of the quality control mechanism of the germ cells? And um, as a part two, have you tested uh, stress responses in other organs and tissues as well, and whether that also has a quality control effect on the germline?
1: I think it will be very important to understand how these, um, uh, how these stress responses in the intestine impact uh, act on the, on the quality control in the, in the oocytes, um, because they would offer a lot of therapeutic opportunities because then you could actually use these this very same mechanisms to improve quality control um, uh, in, in, in the germ cells, in the oocytes. Um, and I think um, because they are systemically acting, and they are defined signaling mechanisms, there's a really a lot of opportunity to make advances here that have therapeutic impact. Um, Whether there are other mechanisms, so we in this case focused on the intestine and that is very specific to the intestine, um, but we are greatly expanding currently this work to also look at other cell types, um, other tissues that contribute to the germ cell quality control. Um, and I think there's a lot of exciting news that will be um, uh, that will be coming out in our research in the very near future.
0: Fantastic. I, I can't wait. So we've covered a lot, but um, anything any last um, thoughts maybe on DNA damage germ cells that I haven't discussed or maybe um, what else are you excited about when it comes to exploring DNA damage, repair mechanisms?
1: What is? What is really exciting is that we have learned a lot about aging, about the genome and in, and about the repair mechanisms that are required for healthy aging. We've learned particularly how complex this biology is. There's no quick fix to this. Um, DNA damage occurs constantly all the time, um, but we understand much, much better nowadays. We're gaining new, fundamentally new insight into Um, into how tissue cells repair, how they are maintained, how they interact with with each other, how how germ cells um, have such a profoundly um, uh, uh, higher capability to repair their genomes that they are essentially immortal, that they can be passed on in humans. Since 200,000 years of modern Homo sapiens, we still are coming from the very same germ cells that our ancestors have passed on. Um, and I think there's a lot of opportunity to gain, get new insights. I think this, there's a lot of fundamental research that we are doing that is exciting, that will bring new breakthroughs. And I think we need to focus on, on uh, expanding the fundamental research. Um, the fundamental understanding of the bio- biology of aging and the integrity of our genomes. And I think this is really where the major game changers, where the real innovations will come from, is the fundamental research that uh, the field of aging and the field of DNA repair is currently doing.
0: Very excited. I, I can't wait either. So thank you so much for your time today. This has been fantastic. I I, I learned a lot. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hi again, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the episode and learned from it. If so, please show some support by subscribing to my YouTube channel, Live Longer World, liking the video, sharing the podcast, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to dive into these topics further and receive extensive show notes and transcripts from each episode, you can sign up to be a premium subscriber at livelongerworld.com/ premium. To be notified of upcoming podcast releases, sign up on my website at LiveLongerWorld.com. Follow me on Twitter at LiveLongerWorld and Instagram at LongevityFuture. Thanks for listening, stay in good health, and I'll catch you soon.